I should like to call your attention this evening to that uh, great incident recorded in that third chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles, which we have read together at the beginning. The account, the incident of the healing and the raising of that impotent men at the beautiful gate of the temple by the apostles Peter and John. I rarely want to comment upon the whole incident, but if you would like a particular text, we might well take the sixth verse. Then Peter said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now, I have a number of reasons for calling attention to this uh, well-known and familiar incident this evening. One is that it is actually one of the uh, first uh, pictures which we are given in this book of the Acts of the Christian church in action. The church, in a sense, uh, came into being on the day of Pentecost. She had existed, of course, before, but in this new sense, she had come into being then. Peter, I know, had preached on the day of Pentecost itself. But here, in a sense also, is one of the first pictures that we have of the church in action. And it is good for us thus on the first Sunday night of a new year to look at the beginning. It's always a good thing to go back to origins and to beginnings. One of the greatest causes of trouble in life, I think, is that we all tend to forget first principles. We become immersed and involved in implications and outworkings uh, to such an extent that we often lose connection entirely with origins and with first principles. And therefore I deliberately go back this evening uh, to this picture of one of the first examples of the Christian church in action. Because here we are also given very clear teaching as to what is in reality the function of the Christian church. Now, there is much confusion about that. I don't think anybody will dispute to that uh, statement, that proposition. And therefore, it is always essential that we should know what is the true, the primary function of the Christian church. And here, we shall see that very plainly. But above all, I call your attention to this incident tonight because it is a picture of the glory of the gospel and its message. It comes out here, as I trust we shall all be enabled to see, in all its fullness and in all its wonder. Now, I propose, therefore, to use this incident this evening in exactly the same way as the Apostle Peter used it. Primarily, of course, we are looking here at the account of a miracle. There's no question about that at all. A miracle was worked upon this man. Here was a man nearly 40 years of age who had never walked in his life, and yet in a moment he's walking and leaping and praising God and going into the temple. Now, that's a miracle. There's no question about that. And I trust that nobody here is so foolish as to find it difficult to believe in miracles. If you believe in God, you must believe in miracles. God is not bound by his own laws. And the miracles that are reported in the Bible are but manifestations of this 
lordship and sovereignty and power of God over everything. He normally acts in immediate manner, but occasionally he acts in an immediate manner. And he does so on these special occasions in order to give us glimpses of himself and of his glory. As the apostle puts it, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son Jesus. It's a miracle. But uh, the apostle, you notice from the reading, was very much concerned to show these people the purpose of the miracle. Our tendency always is to stop at the, mir- at the miracle. We stop at the marvel and at the wonder. We regard it as a sort of phenomenon. And we stop at the phenomenon. But that's completely to misunderstand miracles and their function and their purpose. But the apostle, in his address, makes it perfectly plain to these people as to what is the real function and meaning of the miracle. It's this. The object of the miracle is to call attention to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is to attest his person. It is to substantiate the claims which the apostles were making for him, that he is indeed the Son of God and the Savior of the world. As Peter, when he's on trial, uh, as we read in the next chapter, uh, puts it so explicitly to the authorities, neither is there salvation in any other, uh, for there is none other name under heaven given amongst men whereby we must be saved. The whole object of the miracle was, to the point to him, we haven't done this, says Peter. It is this Christ whom you rejected. He's done it. He's showing his power, his strength. He is doing what he said he would do. He has risen. He sent down the Holy Spirit, and he's filling us with this power and with this ability. So the primary object of the miracle, as Peter indicates, is to point to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and to attest his claims and also at the same time to show the real meaning and object and purpose of his coming into this world at all. Very well then, that is precisely what the apostle does and what I propose to do this evening. The physical is a fact, but it is also a picture and a parable of something infinitely more important. Peter only starts with a miracle, he doesn't end with it. He ends by preaching the gospel in the light of the miracle. And that is what the church throughout the centuries has done with this incident and with every other incident. Well, now then, I want to take hold of this picture, this physical thing that happened to this man at the beautiful gate of the temple. And to show you here how we are given a most clear and plain account of the whole message of the Christian gospel this evening. This is what it's got to say to mankind at this very moment. The matter divides itself up quite simply. First, man as he is, man in his need. And all this is typified and represented, of course, by this man who was uh, taken daily, we are told, and uh, put there to sit on the pavement outside the beautiful gate of the temple uh, to ask alms of them that entered 
into the temple. They carried him there daily and just put him there and then he would accost people as they were passing into the temple and ask them for alms as he did in the case of Peter and of John. Well now then, here are the principles that are set forth so clearly in this pictorial manner. The gospel of Jesus Christ starts by making its pronouncement with regard to the whole state and condition of man and of his world. We're all aware of the troubles, we're all aware of the problems. But the trouble is that we're not aware of the real essence and nature of our difficulties. And the first thing the gospel has to tell us is precisely what is the trouble, what is the matter. And so the first thing I've got to point out is this. That this man had been lame from his mother's womb. He'd been born lame. He'd never had power in his limbs. He was born a cripple. I start with that, of course, because it is the point from which we must start. In other words, the real trouble with the world this evening is something which is very, very old. It isn't something that belongs only to this 20th century. It's nothing new. It's an old, old story. Why is the world as it is? Well, the world is as it is because every one of us that is born into this world is born paralyzed. Lame from his mother's womb. We don't start perfectly in this life. We don't even start neutral. From the very moment of our birth, we begin to give evidence of a bias and a tendency that is in us towards evil. I'm not going to stop with this great doctrine of original sin this evening, but you know it is the whole basis of Christian thinking. And the world is as it is, and all the proffered remedies lead to nothing because men and women who are not Christian in their outlook simply do not recognize original sin. They haven't seen that the trouble with men is something that is inherent in man himself. They will persist in thinking that it's in his surroundings, in his environment, and that if only the environment and surroundings could be made perfect, the man would be perfect, not realizing that he's born paralyzed from his mother's womb. I was born in sin, shapen in iniquity, In sin did my mother conceive me, says the wise psalmist. And the moment we really begin to examine ourselves and ponder over our story in in life and in this world, we surely must all become aware of it. I'm not all right left to myself. If I'm left to myself by the whole world, I am aware of things within me. A fatal bias which I have not produced nor created. I started with it. I've been conscious of it from the earliest moments of consciousness. There is something innate in the whole of human nature from the beginning. It's in us. From his mother's womb. From birth. There is that which has entered into the life of the human race that has bedeviled the whole story 
And if you want to know what it is, you'll find it in the early chapters of the book of Genesis. And if you don't believe them, well then I challenge you. How do you explain the world? What is the explanation of this universality of evil, the universality of sin, the universality of wrongdoing, the universality of this bias towards that which is unworthy? What is it? Here is this principle that is in every man and woman born into this life and into this world. We start with it. Life is a battle and a struggle from the first moment, from the very beginning. Well, let us leave that and go on to the second point, which, of course, I've already been mentioning, and that is that uh, the man was paralyzed, lame from his mother's womb. That's why they had to carry him. He couldn't walk. Now, what does this mean? Well, this is the thing that tells us that man is not functioning as he was meant to function. This man had legs, but he couldn't use them. And there, in a parable, you see the whole story of the human race. Man is not functioning as he was meant to function. He seems to possess all the faculties that are necessary. All the propensities are here. And yet, as you look at him individually, as you look at him collectively, you see clearly that he's not functioning in a true manner, in the way that he was meant to function. God made man upright. God intended that men should live a certain kind of life. But man is unable to do that. He is paralyzed. And in what respects does this paralysis show itself? Well, here are some of them. Man was meant to know God and to enjoy God. The chief end of men, according to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the chief end of men is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Man was made in the image of God because he was designed and meant for fellowship with God. He wasn't meant to be searching for God and seeking God or escaping. He was meant to be in an intimate fellowship and communion with God. But man as he is doesn't know God. And so you find these endless statements in the scripture. Can a man by searching find out God? Who shall ascend? Who can ascend? This difficulty, oh, that I knew where I might find him, says Job, speaking for us all. Man has become estranged from God and try as he will, he cannot find God. He attempts it, he tries philosophically and in many other ways, but he can never get there. He arrives at some unknown God and never at a real and a true knowledge of God. There is this fatal paralysis that is ever preventing us just at the point when we seem to be succeeding. And not only that, it not only prevents our knowing God, it prevents our serving God. God has made it very plain to us as to what he wants us to do. We have it in his Ten Commandments, we have it in his moral law, you've got it in the Sermon on the Mount. That is how man was meant to live. He was meant to live, I say, a life that should be well-pleasing in God's sight. We were meant to live a life of holiness, a life of truth, a life of purity. We were never intended to live what the New Testament describes as the hidden works of darkness. No, no. We were meant to live upright, just and righteous and holy and pure and good. But try as he will, men cannot do that. 
The more he tries, the more he becomes conscious of his inability. And when he is utterly honest with himself, he joins Augustus Toplady in saying, Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know, could my tears forever flow. All for sin could not atone. No, no, I'm incapable. Have you ever faced this? Have you ever tried it? You know, this is the story of all the saints and all the people whose stories shine out in the annals of the Christian church throughout the running centuries. They're all men and women who've become aware of this fell and dread paralysis. They're aware of this loss, this inability. They, they see what they should be and they want to be innocent, but they cannot. They strive only to fail. They're always going forwards and slipping backwards. And the whole of life becomes vain and becomes empty. Man, I say, is a creature who is paralyzed. And that is the very essence of the problem of the world this evening. It is suffering from a moral paralysis. But, and this is a point I want to emphasize... You notice the next thing we are told about this man was this. That the poor man who was thus paralyzed had, in a sense, ceased to be concerned at all about his paralysis, about his true need and about his real need. Now that is stated here more than once. He was carried thus, we are told, every day to ask alms of them that entered into the temple. And then, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked an alms. And Peter, fastening his eye upon him with John, said, Look on us. And he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. Now, this is a most significant thing. Here is a man, you see, whose real need was his paralysis. But he's no longer concerned about that. He's not concerned at all about it. Instead of being concerned about his health and his ability and his uh, functioning as he should have functioned, the man, I say, is interested in nothing but in arms. What does that mean? Well, in the, in, in the means of subsistence. In the means of going on with his existence. Here is a man, I say, who, though paralyzed, is no longer interested in that. The one thing he's now interested in is, well, that he shall just have enough money to keep himself going. And he concentrates on that problem alone and on nothing else. And here again is something that is so painfully obvious about the whole world this evening. Read your newspapers. Listen to the addresses that were given on New Year's Day and that will be given today and have already been given today. What are they all about? Well, they're all rarely in the last analysis simply concerned about the means of existence. They're not concerned about the fundamental problem, about the real need. They're interested in avoiding war. They're interested in having more money, in having sufficient food. All these things, I grant, are perfectly necessary. But these are not the real need. That is why so many today are talking about these bombs and rockets and what's going to happen, and how can we deal with it? All the time and the attention is being given to these things. Yes, as this man was only interested in arms and was not concerned about his paralysis. And so we see the world of men this evening. 
not really interested in, not concerned about this problem of sin that has entered into life and into the world and has paralyzed all men's efforts and endeavors. But now, our object is, I say, just to keep going, just to have our enjoyment, just to avoid certain difficulties and problems, and we spend the whole of our time in discussing these things and talking about them. Indeed, it's even worse than that. That is all that the world asks for from the gospel. You listen to the average man talking about Christianity, and this is what he'll say to you. He says, but your Christianity has been preached now for nearly 2,000 years, and it hasn't put an end to wars. You see, if your Christianity is true, why doesn't it deal with all these bombs and so on? You see, that's the thing they expect from it. That's to them the one problem. They're simply concerned to eke out an existence which is a little bit happier. They want to get rid of these pests and problems and all these things that ruin life, and then you want to have peace and plenty. And their entire and their whole concentration is upon these things. Now I want this to be very practical this evening, and therefore I ask a question at this point. What is it that you expect to receive from this gospel? What's your view of it? What's your idea concerning it? What do you think Christianity is in the world for? Why did the Son of God ever come? What is his business? What does he offer us? What is it that you are seeking at this very moment in this chapel? Are you just like this man at the beautiful gate of the temple trying to forget your problems for an hour or so? Do you want to have a certain nice feeling or this or that? Or have you come because you're concerned about a deep and a radical and a central problem? Are you just asking for some sort of spiritual arms? Or are you here because you're aware of the canker in your soul? This fell paralysis that ruins the whole of life. There is nothing to me so pathetic and tragic about the story of this man in this third chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles as the way in which it goes on repeating that he was only interested in arms. Why didn't the men say, oh, that I might walk? Oh, that I might have strength in my limbs? No, no, he's lost interest in that. He's only interested in eking out an existence, somehow or another continuing, though it means just sitting on the pavement and holding out his hand to receive arms. And why had the men got into that condition? Oh, there's no difficulty about answering that question. He was suffering from this final hopelessness that sin always leads to. The world apart from Christ is hopeless. It is cynical. It is despairing. It has come to the conclusion that nothing radical can really be done. It says in a world like this, you know, miracles don't happen. You've just got to grin and bear it. You've got to get on with it. The thing is, can I get enough arms to keep myself going? And can I prevent certain other eventualities from happening to me? That's the best you can get in a world like this, they say. The world is profoundly cynical. It's hopeless. It is despairing. There is no doubt at all but that this man, at least his parents on his behalf, had consulted many with respect to his paralysis, with respect to his impotence. But nobody could help him. Nothing could be done. And the world has been very busy in trying to treat itself. 
It has tried the medicaments. It has tried the various panaceas. But at last, it's beginning to get tired. And the whole world is like this man at the beautiful gate of the temple. It says, what's the use of anything? Can we at any rate postpone it while we are still alive? Let's go on begging for arms. As long as we have peace while we are here, let the future look after itself. It's not our responsibility. Can we just somehow prevent war for, for the time being? Can we just go on enjoying ourselves as best we can? Don't we all know something in experience about this sense of hopelessness? This sense of utter despair. Don't we all tend to reach a point at which we say, it's no use crying over spilled milk. The best thing I can do is to make the best of a bad job. And to make sure that the rest of my existence will somehow or another be free from too many encumbrances. If I can just go through somehow, I shall be more than content just begging on. And you notice that in that condition, all the world can do for us is just to carry us. I know of nothing more pathetic than this. Listen. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they lay daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful. That's all they could do for him. They could just carry him that he might ask alms. No more. They just spent their time in carrying him there, putting him down, picking him up again and after a few hours, taking him back to his home, lifting him up, carrying him back and forth. Nothing beyond that. Just carrying him in his impotence and helplessness that he might continue begging and asking alms. Had you ever realized, my friend, that that is again just a perfect summary of what civilization means? Had you realized that leaving out Christianity, that is all that the world can do for you? I don't care what aspect of it you look at. I don't care how high, how noble. I say it never takes you further. Take a thing like education. One of the greatest benefits and blessings that a man can ever have in this world and in this life. What does it do for him? I tell you that in the last analysis it does nothing more than this. It just carries him daily that he may continue asking alms. It can make life more comfortable. It can give a man intellectual interests. It can enlarge his outlook. Yes, and while he's reading and studying, he forgets the central problem. But he doesn't solve the central problem. The most highly educated man has a moral problem which is as deep and as grievous as the most illiterate and uneducated. And so it is with art and with culture and with all these things. Ah, they interest you. They help to make life a little more happy and more enjoyable. They relieve you of certain forms of suffering. I throw in medicine. I throw in law. I throw in your social actions, your social legislation. I take the last hundred years of unmatched and unrivaled legislation. Acts of Parliament passed in Westminster. What have they all done? I say they can be summarized like this. They've simply carried us and made it a little bit easier for us to go on asking arms. 
They haven't touched the central problem of life. Take all your idealisms. Take all your utopias. Take all the highest endeavors of the human mind and the human heart. Your poetry, your music, your everything. It never gets beyond this. It just carries us. We don't have to sort of shuffle on the ground to take up our position outside the beautiful gate of the temple. They carry us and they put us there and we're in a more advantageous position. But we're still beggars. We're still seeking arms. And we're still paralyzed. We're still helpless. And we're still finally hopeless. Isn't it rather essential that we should realize these things? Had you, my friend, on this first Sunday night in 1959 realized that that is the position of every one of us by nature? And that if we are looking to the world or to the future to assuage our griefs or solve our problems, we are doomed to disappointment. They cannot. They can do nothing beyond just carrying us and putting us down outside the beautiful gate of the temple. Well, there is man in his need. There is the world without the gospel of Christ. Come, let me take my second point. The second point is the coming of the gospel. And isn't it wonderful? Isn't it unlike anything and everything that you've ever heard of before? Look at this man. Here he's suddenly confronted by two men and he's never seen or known anybody like them. Something new, something strange, something wonderful. And if you haven't realized that the gospel comes in like that, you don't know anything about the gospel. Well, now then, let me divide that up. Here's the first thing that I note about it. The romantic character of this gospel. Are you interested in romances? Well, if you want to know something romantic, read your New Testament. Just look at this romance that was enacted there at this beautiful gate of the temple. Look at this man. If you want excitement, if you want a thrill, if you want something that absorbs you with its strange romance, here it is. Is there anything more beautiful, more idyllic, more wonderful? But then let me note another thing. The transforming character of the gospel. Didn't you notice how when Peter and John came along and this interview began to take place that the whole situation was entirely changed? Just try and conjure up in your imagination uh, the two pictures which we are given here in between the lines of this poor man. Think of him when his friends came for him in the morning to pick him up and to carry him as they'd done every other day for so many long years to put him there at his particular pitch outside the beautiful gate of the temple. Just think of the picture. Ah, oh, they've come once more and they indulge in their greetings as usual. Well, it's just going to be another day of almsgiving. Let's hope it won't rain and let's hope a number of people will be going into the temple that I'll get a lot of alms and do well. There it was. That was the mentality and the outlook. Carried in his utter helplessness and paralysis to ask arms. And then look at the rest of the story. Look at the same man walking and leaping and praising God. See him going home that night, rushing into the house, asking the people to look at him. A complete entire transformation. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Did you know that? Have you realized that this is the power of God and to salvation to everyone that believeth? This isn't mere teaching. This isn't mere good advice. This isn't merely something that will help you to forget your troubles or ease your situation a little bit. This is the power of the creator of the whole universe dealing with a soul, renovating it, transforming it. The whole situation was entirely changed. It's a rebirth. It's a regeneration. It's a new creation. It's transforming character. But the thing that I want to emphasize most of all is what I have called its unexpected and its surprising character. And you know, this was my real reason for coming to this this Sunday night. I verily believe that I was given the message and led to it, but this was the thing that appealed to me. The unexpectedness of the gospel. The surprising character of the gospel. I said to myself, I wonder how many people will come and say, well, it's a New Year's first Sunday night of the New Year. I might as well go. I wonder what this old gospel has got to say. Is there any value? Is there any hope? You may have come in a state of hopelessness. My dear friend, when you come under the sound of this gospel, anything may happen. Listen for one thing to the time element in this unexpectedness. Did you notice how suddenly this thing happened to this man? Here he was, born lame, lame from his mother's womb, and now above 38 years of age. Suddenly the whole situation is transformed and he's able to function and to walk as he was meant to do. That is why I use this term romantic. There is nothing more romantic than preaching the gospel. There is nothing more romantic than the operations of the gospel. The fools who came to scoff remain to pray. The suddenness of it all. You never know when it's going to happen. You see, when the power of God comes in, well, anything can happen at any moment. Suddenness. And you never know when. That is, I suppose, one of the greatest privileges that is given to a pastor. Just to watch people. And he watches and watches sometimes with anxiety. He says, how much longer is that person going to listen to this gospel without being affected? And sometimes he's expected, he's at the point almost of despairing. Suddenly it happens and you never know when. That is why I say when a man enters into a pulpit like this, it's the most romantic thing in the world. You never know what's going to happen. You never know who is going to feel the power of the Almighty. You never know when a soul is going to be brought into this rebirth. At any moment, suddenly, unexpectedly. Yes, and very often when we least expect it. I don't want to indulge in imagination. But I can well imagine a conversation going on. When that man was carried from his home that morning to the beautiful gate of the temple. He says, what a life. Seeking alms, begging, day after day, the dull, the miserable routine. But it was that very day it happened. And so it has happened so often in the long story of the Christian church. 
You may watch a soul gradually, surely declining, going down and down and down. And you do everything and every appeal is tried and the last reserves are brought out and they're all in vain. And you feel the case is finally hopeless. But just at that moment, the power of God comes. When you were at the very end of your terror, when you felt you couldn't go on any longer, when the agony of your soul was so great that you felt nothing could relieve you and you felt that even life was scarcely worth living, when all was lost, suddenly he appeared. Our hymn that we've just been singing has put it perfectly. Sometimes a light surprises the Christian while he sings. It is the Lord who rises with healing in his wings. When there's no fruit and the stalls are bare and when there's no fodder for the animals, when there is drought and all is finished, suddenly and unexpectedly he comes. And you notice the other point in the time factor. It's a glorious thing this. Peter said unto him, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up. And immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. This isn't a cause of treatment. This isn't sending a man to a spiritual spa where he has to go through a long course of treatment. Immediately. Oh, I want these final ultimate principles to be clear this first Sunday night. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God and to salvation and therefore it can put you right in a moment, in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye. You needn't wait. It's God acting. He who said at the beginning, let there be light and there was light. Immediately. His feet and ankle bones received strength. Had you realized that it's possible for you this evening, however you may have come into this service, to go out of it, walking and leaping and praising God? Ah, but you say, I've sinned for years. I've neglected, I've spurned the vice divine. Do you say it can happen suddenly? Of course it can. It's God. It's the power of God unto salvation. And immediately, his feet and ankle bones received strength. What a gospel that can suddenly come to a man sunk, degraded, down in the depths of sin and of iniquity and in a moment raise him up and put him on his feet. Take him out of the miry clay and the horrible pit and establish his goings and set his feet upon a rock. Immediately. I'm not asking you to take up a course for 1959. I'm not asking you to start tonight and promise this and pledge that and go on and on. No, no. I am telling you that God here and now, immediately, through his dear Son by the Holy Spirit, can make you whole. There are some thoughts on the time element, but listen. Who is it that does all this to us? Who is it that gives us this? But before I even answer that, let me ask this question. What is it the gospel gives us? 
I needn't keep you with this because Peter in this immortal phrase has fixed it once and forever. Peter said, silver and gold have I none. You're asking alms, I haven't got it. I'm a poor man like yourself. Silver and gold have I none. And it's essential that we should emphasize this negative. I don't spend my Sunday evenings in this pulpit giving you pompous opinions about war and peace and industry and a thousand and one other things and I'll tell you why. They're of no value to anybody. They're a waste of time. They don't affect the situation at all. I'm not called to do things like that. Silver and gold have I none. I'm not an expert on economics. I'm not an expert on war. I don't understand these things. Silver and gold have I none. The Christian church is not a political agency. She is not a cultural agency. She is not a social agency. She's none of those things. And well, she tries to be. She puts herself in series with what the world can do. It just carries us and helps us to ask our arms. Or it gives us interest and excitement and eases our troubles and problems at various points. But that isn't the business of the Christian church. Silver and gold have I none. But such as I have, give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. What's it mean? It means this. There is something I can say to you, and it is this. I can offer you forgiveness. Forgiveness of your sins. Look back. You have been looking back, haven't you? It's a time of stock-taking at the turning of the year. And you look back across 58 and you look back across 57. You've reviewed the whole of your life. And what you find? You find sin. You find failure. You find shame. You find sorrow. Sin! The thing that spoils and ruins life. The cause of all our ills and heartbreaks and unhappinesses. And the question is, can anything be done about sin? And the world can do nothing about sin. And it cannot give me forgiveness. But I, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, announce to you tonight, you can be forgiven now, fully, freely, absolutely. Your sins can be blotted out as a thick cloud. Such as I have give I thee. And that is the first thing I offer is forgiveness. Reconciliation to God, the God whom you've ignored and the God whom you've rebelled against. The God whom you don't know. I offer you a knowledge of God and a friendship with God, a communion with God, a full reconciliation to the God against whom you so grievously sinned. I offer it you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth and with his full authority. I go further. I offer you new life. What you say, new life? How can it be? I've lived so many years. I'm the creature of habits and of customs. You say I can have a new start. I say you can start afresh and anew. 
I say you can be born again. I say you can go out of this place feeling that you're a new man. You won't know yourself. You'll be amazed at yourself. Life renewal. The life of God in the souls of men. You can become this evening a partaker of the divine nature. The Holy Spirit can infuse into you a principle of new life and of divine life. And all this, of course, leads to another thing, which is power to live, power to function as we should. The paralysis gone, strength in the feet and ankle bones, moral power, moral grit. You know the gospel offers to give you this now as a free gift. Haven't we all known the futile striving in our own willpower? Yes, we've said, I'm tired of this. I'm going to take a New Year's resolution. I'm going to turn over the leaf. I'm starting afresh. I am resolved. I promise, I pledge. And we haven't kept it for a day. Our wills are weak. They're paralyzed. We haven't got the moral stamina. There's a moral turpitude that afflicts us. And we've promised, we've tried, we've pledged, and we've always failed. There is no strength in our spiritual feet and ankle bones. But I offer you immediately in the name of Jesus Christ, power, moral, spiritual power, the power of the Holy Ghost coming into you and transforming you and making you feel you're like a giant. You can resist the devil and he'll flee from you. You will be enabled to pray I need thee every hour, stay thou nearby. Why? Well, temptations lose their power when thou art nigh. I fear no foe with thee at hand to bless. It will enable you to say that. And the result of all this, of course, is joy. Did you see this man walking, leaping, yes, and praising God? He'd never done it before but he has every reason for doing it now. Joy has come flooding into his life. The joy of a man emancipated. The joy of a man liberated. The joy of a man who has power and strength and vitality and stamina. Walking and leaping and praising God. And then as he looks to the future, he has an eternal and an everlasting hope. Death is no longer the end to this man. He sees through it and beyond it to a glory that is awaiting him in the presence of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and all the holy angels and the spirits of just men made perfect, the beatific vision, the everlasting, the blessed hope. That is what it offers. Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, give I thee. And there they are. The past shall be forgotten. A present joy be given. A future grace be promised. A glorious crown in heaven. And then the next surprising thing is the one who gives it, I say. And I needn't keep you, it's all in him. These people were beginning to praise Peter and John. Stop, says Peter, why look ye on us? As though by our own power, our holiness, we had made this man to walk. No, no, he says, it is the God of our father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob who has done this. 
and he's done it through his only begotten son. And I imagine that this was the thing that surprised the crowd in Jerusalem on that famous occasion more than anything else. Jesus of Nazareth, they said, who is he? He's an imposter. He's but the carpenter. They'd cried, saying, away with him. Crucify him. Do you know what you did, says Peter? You crucified the just and the holy one. You killed the prince of life. You killed the author of life. We are not doing this, says Peter. It's that Jesus whom you rejected and crucified. He's doing it. He's risen. He sent the power. It is he in us and through us. Not us. It is Jesus Christ. And so I have the privilege of emphasizing and of reminding you this evening that all the blessings of God come through Jesus Christ, his Son. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given amongst men whereby we must be saved. If you need to be blessed by God, go to Christ. It's all in this blessed person, the one who came from the courts of heaven and was born of the virgin's womb. He's the one who does it. Jesus Christ, have you been to him? Have you applied to him? Do you know him? He is the giver of the gift. And perhaps the most amazing thing of all is the way in which he does it. You killed, says Peter, you killed the prince of life. You desired a robber to be given unto you. And you put him to death but you didn't know it. By dying, he has purchased your pardon. This Prince of Life, this Son of God, who came into this world to give us this deliverance and all these bountiful gifts, how does he do it? He does it by dying. He has made himself his soul an offering for our sins. He has borne our sins in his own body on the tree. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. He didn't grumble, he didn't complain, he didn't try to escape. He said he could command twelve legions of angels, but then how should righteousness be fulfilled? He came to die, to taste death for every man. He's died for you. He saves you, this God of glory, by dying for you upon a gibbet. And it is as the result of his death that we live. It is by his stripes that we are healed. He has borne our bruises and our iniquities. He has taken our sorrows and our diseases upon himself. That's how he does it. What a story. Is there anything so amazing, so unexpected? And that brings me to the last point of all. The gospel seems to be most surprising of all in what it asks of us. And what does it ask of us? Well, it's all here. Here are Peter and John on the point of entering into the temple. And this man asked alms of them. And Peter, fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, Look on us. Look on us. And that's all the gospel asks of us. 
What does it mean? It means this. It wants our attention. It wants us to listen. It wants us to listen to its own proclamation about us. It wants us to give the whole of our personality. Look here, said Peter, we can't give you what we've got to give as long as you're looking somewhere else to see who's coming next and holding out a hand like that to receive something from me. That's how you've done it with your arms. Yes, you're looking for the next man who comes and asking me of arms. No, no, says Peter, look on us. I want your whole concentration. I want your entire personality. I want you to give me your undivided attention. Now, my dear friend, this is most important. This is really vital. There are so many people in the world tonight who are not Christian, who are not enjoying these blessings because they've never really given this matter their undivided attention. Have you? Have you really concentrated on the question of your soul and its diseased condition? Have you really become concerned about your paralysis? Are you as concerned about your moral failure tonight as you are about these bombs and about this rocket and this satellite? Tell me, how often have you sat down and faced yourself? It's New Year. I'm asking you to do it. Look on us. Listen to what I'm saying. While you're playing with your soul, nothing will come of it. You must give your whole attention. You must listen to me when I tell you. But you're only going to live in this world a very short time. Every hour you live is an hour nearer death and it may come at any moment. How many of us will be here in a year's time? I don't know. But life is uncertain in the midst of life. We are in death. I ask you, have you concentrated on the question of your soul? Have you faced the question of eternity? Do you know your relationship to God? Are you as well versed in these things as you are in music or in art or in literature or medicine or law or politics or a thousand and one other things? Tell me, have you ever given your undivided attention to this question of your own immortal soul and your relationship to that everlasting God? Look on us, I say. Give your undivided attention. Concentrate. You will never know the blessing until you're more concerned about your soul than you are about anything else in the world. That's what it asks of us. Just that we listen. Just that we concentrate. Just that we realize that these things are infinitely more important than the whole world together this evening. And the second thing is simply obedience. Look on us. Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. That's what he said to a man who'd never walked in his life. That's what he said to a man who was about 40 years of age and had never moved a limb. In the name of Christ, rise up and walk. And he did. Obedience. Simple, unquestioning obedience. No arguing, no putting forward of the difficulties. No arguing on the basis that he'd been paralyzed so long and that his very tendons were shrunken and that his muscles were atrophied. Not at all. The authority came in the word, rise up and walk. And he arose. And Peter just gave him his hand. 
If you were going to try to understand this glorious gospel of redemption with your pygmy mind, you'll be as lost and as damned at the end of 1959 as you are at this minute. My dear friend, you have but one thing to do. Having seen the state of your soul and its precarious position, listen, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. The moment you believe this testimony concerning him, that he is the Son of God, and that he died, that you might be forgiven, that he bore your punishment, that he stood in your place, that he's risen to justify you, that he'll clothe you with his righteousness. The moment you believe it, whether you understand it or not, or feel it or not, the moment you believe it, and commit yourself to it, you will find that it is a fact. You won't know yourself. And it can happen here and now. Look on us, listen. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, you who have failed hitherto, you who have been impervious to the most tender appeals of your own conscience and of your husband or your wife or your dear children or your family, you who are paralyzed, paralytic, listen. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. You will go from this service walking and leaping and praising God. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.